bitch bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica. And I'm Arzu, and this is Misogynist of the Week. So, who do we have for this week? What lucky sucker is this? We have Jamil Giovanni, who was recently appointed as the government's, the Ontario government's um, uh, advisor on community relations and community engagement. Um, I think that the exact um, role that he has is an advocate for community opportunities within the government. What does that even and mean? And it's basically, honestly, I feel like it was the Ford's government, the Ford's response to um, all of the BLM calls for action and calls for defunding the police that have been going on in the past. And they thought that they need to have a voice. They need to have a mouthpiece and someone who, again, diversifies their Mayo collective. Is this, is uh, but this man at black? the same time will stay in line. Uh, yes. Okay. So, but, yeah. but he's some community relations something or other. But they haven't, so, so nothing to do with like anti-black racism, nothing to do, they didn't say racism, anti-racism. No, he, he is known as a Canadian social entrepreneur and community organizer. He wrote a book and he's also the founder of an initiative called the Policing Literacy Initiative that is trying to push forward. And again, I'm quoting this from what I found online and it basically is a youth-driven public education and advocacy group focused on community safety issues. And what they try to do is, again, spotlight progressive voices among police and community groups and work with them to find common solutions. So again, he's one of those advocates that believes in policing, believes in increasing communica- community relationships as an avenue for decreasing police violence, which is, again, something that we know does not work, right? We've had this, you know, the schools in uh, the police in Ontario schools that have actually increased the chances of racialized youth, um, again, being penalized and feeling unsafe in their schools. It's something that advocates are constantly fighting against. It looks like saying that, hey, if we have more racialized police in our communities, then we'll be able to build trust and maybe that will decrease police violence. But again, we know that that's not true. So again, as we're going to talk about some of his tweets and some of his ideas, we'll find out more about why, again, this kind of approach and this kind of view on policing and race relations, as they call it, um, is actually very regressive and actually perpetuates a lot of white supremacist and misogynist ideas of what it means to promote safety and security in racialized communities. Okay, but before we do that, um, what is wrong with uh, community policing and community relations and blah, 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 blah? What What is the problem? Well, Explain the problem. Yeah, well... It goes back to the whole idea that, hey, if we just have nicer police officers, if we have deeper relationships and more presence and active engagement of police officers in communities, then maybe these misunderstandings and this lack of compassion that we see towards black communities, toward racialized communities will be addressed. And we know that that is not true. No amount of accountability, including, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, the cameras, body cams, 
um, is actually going to stop the dehumanization and violence against black communities as long as we are we have these police departments and these policing institutions that are based on dehumanizing racialized people that are based on regulating and controlling racialized populations okay and that's why it's problematic okay right? hold on a sec so how do these community relations initiatives manifest themselves in the real world well, a lot of it looks like, again, as I mentioned, the like police and schools programs ah. right, that we know do not actually make schools. So that's what kids, I want to get right? to. OK, so can you explain yeah. that program? And I know about it. I know Desmond had a whole chapter about this in the book. And so uh, explain it to our listeners and explain why it is um, actually quite dangerous. So uh, I'm going to talk about the TDSB, which actually, I think it was in 2017, ended to uh, voted to end uh, armed police presence in schools. Um, in Ontario, that looked, yeah, Toronto District School Board. It, what, you know, it looks like something like the SRO program, which is basically school resource officer program um, that put armed police officers in Toronto, um, in Toronto schools and in Toronto high schools, right? And um, it, 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 it's been kind of um, criticized by advocates. There's been a lot of work happening. Um, you know, there's uh, this amazing um, Latinx uh, black woman, Afro-Latinx woman called um, Andrea, um, who, you know, she's amazing. She does such amazing work. And she's kind of trying to get that banned in other um, school districts in Toronto, um, in Ontario, sorry. Um, so um, I think one of the problems with uh, SROs or school resource officers, armed police in schools, is that it is the first point of surveillance by um, police services of youths of color. So, for example, they'll take down their names and information. We don't know what they're doing with that information. We don't know if they're putting it into some database. We don't know what, what they're using that information for. So that's number one. Uh, number two, we do know, too, that it is sort of a way for border securities to track down illegal migrants or illegal immigrants into Canada. That is one of the ways these families are surveilled. Yeah. Another thing is think of child protective services, for example. Mm -hmm. Think of how kids get taken away from indigenous and black households way more often than white households, right? School resource officers are the way to sort of they're sort of that pivot point, that point of contact. So don't think that SROs are in schools to help children. They are not. They're there to start the process of the school-to-prison pipeline. In other words, school officers are in schools. They, target, they have been shown to target and harass children of color more often than white children. Something goes wrong which has happened, and yeah. these kids end up in a school-to-prison pipeline. You get kicked out of school, and all that's left for you is prison. Yeah. So, 
And again, going back to that whole idea about why, again, things like race relations or community relations will not actually save black lives or decrease police violence kind of goes back to this, right? Because there's no amount of individual interactions or individual understandings that can count for institutional and systemic violence that continues to impact kids in our schools or black lives and racialized and indigenous lives um, in this country, right? Because again, it, it's not about individuals. It's a, and you know, it happens and it manifests on an individual level. But again, it's a part of the a bigger police institution that continues to harm black communities. And um, again, the fact that uh, people like Jamil continue to defend police services while putting the blame for violence in racialized communities, specifically black communities on black men. And again, he had this tweet about, I think in his book, he talked about the figure of like the absent black father as the reason why so much violence exists in black communities. Again, those are like anti-black talking points and white supremacist talking points that put the blame on the communities of on communities of color who are plagued with violence, who are plagued with underfunding and tries to hide all of the systemic um, issues that are happening within actual systems and structures that work to undermine the autonomy and safety of black and racialized communities. So it's as though the Ford government put like Candace Owens in charge, basically. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so funny that how in our governments, the fact that police's response, specifically police and government's response to uh, violence against women and misogynistic violence in racialized communities has been to paint over the systemic structures and to, again, um, highlight, you know, like, again, point the lens toward indigenous and black communities and highlight, uh, highlight violence in those communities as the basis or at the root cause of all all of these problems, you know? Um, Jamil on July 10th, he made a tweet and said, let's talk about the music industry and, uh, you know, hip hop and rap, all of these musics, uh, you know, types of music actually encourage violence against women and violence in black communities. And again, these are talking points that we've heard from politicians before, you know, who was the latest person that I remember who said something like that? It was Justin Trudeau at the Up For Debate um, event. Uh, I think it was in the 2015 election. He was literally talking about, I remember I was sitting beside actually a a liberal MP and I tweeted this last week and Selena was like, hey, I see you. And basically, Justin Trudeau said that we need to be careful about how some type of types of music encourage violence against women. And, you know, let me ask you, Prime Minister, somebody get this to him because I want an answer. I'm like, hmm, can you can you expand on that, Prime Minister? Which types of music music specifically do you think um, do that? Right. And again, looking back at indigenous communities, we've had literal like, no, um and yeah we've seen this with other ministers and other government members when it comes to violence against indigenous women and indigenous communities um one of the ministers um under harper's government i think it was actually his former aboriginal affairs ministers minister bernard velcourt who said that um sorry i'm just looking for the quote who said that the um, you know, 70% of homicides against indigenous women were caused by indigenous men. So again, we see that it is looking inward, looking into the communities and trying to 
um, blame racial violence against racialized women, specifically black and indigenous women, on racialized men without necessarily accounting for the intergenerational trauma and the types of masculinities and the types of misogynies that have been enforced within these communities as a result of slavery, as a result of colonialism. And um, again, it's it's nothing new. So again, we've had the liberals do it, we've had the federal conservatives do it, and now we have someone who who works with Ontario conservatives again take on, take on the same tactics, right? Of deflecting criticism and moving away from the actual systemic issues that we have toward something that continues to again paint our community communities as inherently guilty and as inherently violent. Yeah, as as savages, basically. And it's just yeah. it's just a continuation of that type of um, framing of our communities. And so that is exactly what this whole black on black crime sort of quote unquote debate, which is not really a debate. It's just a straw man argument to deflect criticism basically from white supremacy and the structures that have been created to tear our families apart. So, for example, um, black on black crime, well, you know, like cities are segregated by race, okay? People who live together in the same area, the crime's going to kind of happen there, okay? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, Like, we don't talk about white on white crime, and that's pretty high. Like, in fact, (laughs) I think actually white people kill other races more than they kill each other. But anyway, I die more so than black people, but I digress. And like, you can look it up. I'm pretty sure that um, the white on white crime statistics, so to speak, is lower. Which which means they're not they're killing non-white people. Which just proves our point, by the way. Okay, so nice try. I know. (laughs) And again, but that's the thing, though. It's like these are the realities. We we can't connect the dots. Again, kind of your point about you know breaking down the black family and looking at how you know like talking about black on black violence and talking about black communities' uh, inability to support their kids or support their families and have again safe and safe lives without violence and connecting that to your point about the SRO program and police presence in schools right so we're looking at a system that chronically underfunds and marginalizes black communities blames black communities and black people for any shortcomings including violence that is based on intergenerational trauma and a bunch of other systems of structures that again do you know contribute to oppression and misogynoir and then uh, we have school, we have p- police presence and like again like let's talk about social workers right social worker presence in so many of these areas um that actually um you know they they set the table and then they re- you know they get ready for you to kind of start eating from it and that's the moment they catch you right the moment they they start yeah. feeling any kind of yeah. um issues and again we know that black mothers and indigenous mothers are um, disproportionately impacted by, again, social services and police services uh, breaking down their families much more than non-Black and Indigenous mothers. Well, so again, it's such a, yeah. it, it's a cycle. It all feeds into each other, right? They're also the essential workers and the precarious workers. And by the way, remember the um, 
the study that you mentioned this week, the Ontario Nonprofit uh, Network, yeah. I think it is, O-N-N. Yeah. Uh, what I was reading from, from that study, um, I did actually peruse it, was that it said that because of precarious work, because black and immigrant women they were talking about, but I'm pretty sure indigenous women are the same, because black women and immigrant women are use are typically work in precarious jobs, they will take on more non-traditional jobs to make ends meet, right? It, which could involve money under the table, usually that kind of thing. So that's like a context that I just think needs to be reminded that is in the background. But carry on. And again, to kind of compare, connect that to another report, there was a new report that came out about women's housing needs, housing needs and homelessness um, a few weeks ago. And we were talking about it too, how black women are discriminated against, especially if when they are on social assistance, um, you know, when renting or when getting mortgages or when accessing housing at any level, right? And again, so these are the same black women who have precarious work and who, who are uh, working in non-traditional ways. And again, these are the same black women who are, again, mis- disproportionately misjudged for not being able to provide for their families or for being away for too long so that they can provide for their families. Um, so again, it's we, we're looking at how uh, it, it's systemic, right? There is increased police presence, increased judgment from a field like social work that gets to decide who keeps, keeps uh, keep their kids and who doesn't. A housing market that discriminates against black and racialized women, a job market that actually contributes and exploit contributes to and exploits precarious work among black women. And then we have people like Jamil Giovanni who are prepared to kind of leave all of that aside and talk about how, you know, the absent black father or the the inherent violence in black culture, including hip hop, is actually the root cause of these problems. Okay, so I remember Nine Age Nails in the 90s and the song was literally I want to fuck you like an animal. Like, I, I, I'm i just saying that's not hip-hop. Misogyny in music is an every... Like, every 80s rock band was a fucking misogynistic goop. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> like, heaviest. Like, you, if you want to talk about violence against women in music, let's talk about, Adam, like, Adam Levine and Maroon 5. I I hate him. (laughs) Like their whole creepy stalker song. Like, let's talk about that. He is Why don't we talk about that? I feel like he was a (laughs) misogynist of the week at one time. And I just, I I love him as much as I love Justin Timberlake and Mark Wahlberg. I just, I can't with him. Okay, I just, I'm just like, really? No. Like, (laughs) I just can't. Yeah. I'm like, hey, Jamil, like, let's talk about Robin Thicke's Good Girl. Well, let's talk about and Robin Thicke and that Miley, I know you want Yeah, and Miley Cyrus on the MTV Awards. Yeah. Like, there's so many. Anyway, the point being that um, this sounds to me like a man who wants to make his fame and money and brand off of telling black people how to pull up their pants. It's the respectability it is politics respectability thing that we politics, talked about, right? Yeah. And it it doesn't do 
anything. Okay, because your respectable ass can still get shot. Who was it? The um, the head of this, the the editor in chief of British Vogue was just racially profiled yeah. in his own fucking office. Yeah. By the way, ever since he took over, British Vogue has been absolutely amazing. But it's been a bomb. It, it, thank you, <laughs> thank you. Okay, but that that this is a man who is at the top of of british working society so pulling up your pants doesn't do shit because the man still got racially profiled at his own workplace like they don't know who the boss is that's some deep shit right there i i i haven't i have to say i haven't fully read it because I have to, you know, prep myself. But that was something where I was just like, this is comical now. Not in like a <laughs> way, but in like a, you don't know what else to do. You don't know what else to say way. Okay. Yeah. I thank you for helping me get off, get off that chest. Would you get, you know. <laughs> of course. Girl, you don't have to thank me. This is you in like your full force. This is you 100%. I just, I just, what else did that, what else did that, um, Negro say. <laughs> oh my god. Does he um, like the fact well, that he's really black? Funny. That's the other thing. Yeah, I'm challenging his blackness. Maybe you should right like slide into I really his DMs am cha- or like No, seriously, <laughs> I'm challenging his blackness. Apparently I just woke up to this conversation or something. Okay? Because I really am challenging uh the veracity of his blackness. This is where I say not all skin folk is kin folk. Just because you have a skin tone doesn't mean you're just in the community and this is my thing yeah who is vouching for him in our community i don't see it it's only white i mean he's a person who called the call like he literally called the calls to defund the police out of touch he literally went on the record and said that okay so he's positioning himself as a tool for white supremacy which does pay well i must say I'm not going to lie. Oh, girl, you know it. I'm not going to lie. It does. It pays very well, and you get to press your nose up to the, to the window of power. The only problem is you'll never make the decisions. Whoops. You will Gee. always be the, the, the boy who got invited into the kitchen, but not at the table. Girl, damn. And it, it, again, it's, it's literally the respectability politics, right? It's like the politics of like representation. As long as, you know, we, we're here, as long as we get our foot through the door, we'll be able to make these changes, Wrong. right? And that's, that's just, that just won't cut it, right? Because, um, again, just being in a place and being given the space to justify white supremacist actions is not the same as being in that space and having the power and the ability to challenge institutions and challenge spaces that continue to marginalize people that look like us. How will he be able Those are two different how things. will he be able to challenge anything they do? Even if he thinks it's wrong. But, he won't be able to. But that's the thing though. He's he like looking at the description for his book and again having got to know him um on Twitter for the past few weeks, it sounds more like he's actually challenging uh he's he's more adamant about challenging racialized communities in the right 
to be themselves, to talk about their issues and to demand change instead of challenging the institutions that are contributing to marginalization, right? Because again, um, a lot of what his book talks about and a lot of the descriptions of his book have been about him being at a crossroads of whether he wants to be a part of this community and follow in the footsteps of all of these other young people in his community or actually change his life and go to Yale and become a lawyer. Who and he did the latter. Who, he was yeah, like, I'm but gonna who, go to Yale and who are his lawyer. community? Where does this guy come from? Um, he is from a mostly immigrant community in Toronto. That's what. That's all I know. <laughs> so what does that mean? Again, doesn't tell you much, does so it? So why is he so? Why is he so thing about his background then? Because that that makes me take pause. Look. All I know is that somebody's got to be able to vouch for him. That's the way our community works, okay? Like, so-and-so. Mm-hmm. And in what and way, And in what right? way. Because even if they do know you, they might not know you in a good way. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, him. Be like, oh, yeah, we do know him. And then you get that look, you know, that look, that, mm. <laughs> And then you know that's not good, Okay. Again, like it's it just goes to show that the people who are chosen by power to represent our communities are probably not like even vouched for in our communities. And honestly, I think he knows that he's not vouched for because he is very bitter towards who he calls the Twitter activists and communities that are looking to cancel people. Right. He keeps talking about it's like, please stop letting Twitter activists present cancel culture as the natural po- politics of a diverse society. This is all a power grab. Twitter activists want to own culture, own culture and institutions. And this was a direct quote from him. But right? they do. So this but, comes from someone who has a direct understanding of what it means to be held accountable and have like no actual response to it. Yeah. But, you know, Twitter is culture. I don't know what else to tell you. Like the internet is culture and the water cooler of the internet is Twitter. Oh my God. Oh wow. What? Oh my God. That should be on a t-shirt. No, it is. The water cooler of the internet is Twitter. It is. It is. Like, I, I don't know what to tell you. People are like, how dare Twitter shape blah 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 i'm like twitter's been shaping the conversation since like 2015 you just and you didn't talk know. about this all the time yeah, you just didn't know because you just joined twitter like two years ago number one but boomer but yeah exactly <laughs> and number two it, you know that's where your news stories came from like if you look at how information it flows it flows from like twitter to like you know news platforms pretty quickly it's not the other it's not necessarily the other way around not all honestly i love it when you get into your twitter and like social media and like tech and politics yeah i'm like give me a knowledge (laughs) please but it's true i mean i mean twitter uh, twitter has become um i always say trump saved twitter and it's true uh unfortunate but true right Uh, it really is the battleground for politics, for social activism, for political activism, for, for, and then you have, uh, I remember seeing a tweet, actually, this, this will sum up Twitter in a tweet. You know, sometimes 
I come into contact with some of the brightest, freshest, most incredible intellectual analysis. And other times, I meet the dumbest motherfuckers alive. And that's Twitter. In a nutshell. You have the dumbest motherfuckers alive on that platform, and you have the most interesting stories and narratives, and you have the most incredible insights you don't hear anywhere else. You won't hear some of the insights you see on Twitter. You won't hear it on CBC. You won't hear it on news. You won't hear it. You'll hear it on this podcast. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But, you know, you don't hear it many other places, only in distinct places. Twitter is one of those places. And so, um, like... And it's so interesting how... And you told me about this a few weeks ago, how traditional media and newspapers... Uh, again, we're so late to kind of join this conversation and try to use Twitter and social media as a means of kind of distributing thought and, you know, contributing to exchange of ideas. Whereas, you know, like half of your, you know, news titles and headlines come from Twitter. Half of the news that you report on is based on Twitter. Again, you mentioned Trump. It's like he basically tweets out his um, news advisories. You know, he's like, 4 a.m., I have a thought. Yeah, that's he's it. policy by Twitter. There is no written piece anymore. Yeah. And that's the world we're in. You can lament it all you want to. It doesn't mean that there's... The other thing, too, is people think, oh, it's just people fighting online. And I'm like, I would say 65%, 70% of my interaction on Twitter is actually quite positive. It's just that there's certain key moments. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah but so, like now I like it's gotten to the point where like people will send me links, they'll send me research, they'll send me articles, they'll they'll be like, have you seen this? And and the 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 robustness with which we create conversation on that platform is nowhere else. It really isn't. Yeah. So anyway. And honestly, I feel like sometimes I wish we had some of these conversations in person. Even the fights, you know, yeah. I'm like, say it to my face. Let's talk about Canadian politics. Let's talk about misogyny. I'm literally the person who my friends are, oh my God, Arzu started speaking again. This is going to go down. Something's going to happen. But I'm like, why do I have to limit that to Twitter when we can actually have a very engaging, thoughtful conversation in person, right? But that's the thing. Twitter it, Twitter has filled that space. Twitter has allowed for some of those conversation happen, conversations happen while at the same time, and it's the same issue that we have with Facebook and Instagram, uh, while again giving space and giving platform to some of the dumbest and most awful and harmful ideas ever. Yeah. So again, it's about finding that balance. Yeah. And again, really thanking it, um, because again, maybe if it was 20, 30 years ago, it would have taken us years, taken, uh, taken us years of interacting with someone like Jamil in his role as a representative of the government to figure out what kinds of um, ideologies and frameworks he's taken along with himself to that position of power. But with this, a week after he was you know, announced <laughs> as government's representative on community relations or whatever the title is, we know what type of person we're dealing with now because he literally just put it out there for us. And that's a good point because see. if he didn't put <laughs> yeah. it out on Twitter, we wouldn't know. 
So right now, we'd be like representation. Same, oh my god, a black but woman wait, wait. in this conservative government. At the same time, what happens is now it's going to get be harder for him to get buy-in from one side, right? Because yeah. of those tweets. So you're right. He showed who he was, and we needed to see it because good luck now getting buy-in from the community. Because at the end of the day, you still need that buy-in from the community no matter what. Or yeah. else it's going to look like another government failure. And I don't... Which it does. Exactly. So, I and, you know, like, uh, the education minister all, already looks like an idiot. For, like, for months. Oh, What's his name? Stephen, whatever. Like every week. I'm like, what did uh, you yeah, do, bro? What yeah, did you do? I mean, that, that part of his government's already floundering. So I don't think that... He can really afford to really muck this up, which he will because he doesn't have the right people. But, you know, I mean, for me, I just I'm I'm glad bro put it out there. So now we have a basis and a foundation from which to judge him. And yes, I do question his blackness. I don't feel any way about it. Yeah, and that's it on Jamil Giovanni and why we don't. Yeah, them. no, seriously, I, I, you know what we are? We're we're like the social justice mean girls, and we'll be like, you can't sit at our table. Like that's what. Honestly, I'm like, yes, Jamil, I do want to take over culture and institution. Fight. Yes, me. yes, we do. Actually, that's I do. Exactly. I'm not. Like, you know what? You are right. I do want to take over culture and institutions. I just like yes. Let's go. Yes, very good. That other part of what you said is quite true. We do want to take over because the status quo is only working for a smaller and smaller and smaller pr- proportion of the population. Yet it's all our tax dollars going to those institutions that are discriminating against us. So what does that say? Okay, I'm good. Um, amazing. So w- iconic, inspirational. <laughs> Another misogynist of the week. All right. So, uh, just check. Uh, sorry. Keep a lookout for tweets, Facebook posts, Instagram posts. Like, subscribe, um, comment. Oh, that should be like a, a a theme. Like, subscribe, comment. And share. Like, subscribe, comment, and share. I feel like we could rearrange that that into a cute little song, but we'll 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 work on that. All right, Arzu. I'm telling you. Arzu, until Sunday, my dear. And for the rest of you, until next Tuesday. Bye and ciao. Bad and bullshit.